This episode contains content related to substance abuse and may be a sensitive topic for some. Listener discretion is advised. On the last, complicit. I know very little about Gabby, and that in itself speaks volumes. Lauren hung out with Carl because she felt safe. Carl had a bunch of people doing drugs at his house. Two girls died of the overdose. Then they hid the bodies. She was pregnant, and the child could either be Gabby's or Carl's. You could see on her arm where she blocked. There's a big mark on her arm over here. She could see where there's like handprints and strangle marks on her neck. Twenty-nine days since this missing Cape Coral mother was last seen. Lauren DeMolo just turned 30 on Tuesday. DeMolo hasn't been seen in more than a month now. The Baker Act, which allows authorities to force a psychiatric evaluation on anyone considered to be a danger to themselves or others. Where is Lauren DeMolo? I'm Hillary Wadsworth. And I'm Caitlin Boddy. And you're listening to Complicit. Chapter 12, Erratic Behavior. In this episode, we're still back in time before Lauren disappeared. Two and a half weeks before, to be exact. Up until this point, we've spent a lot of time talking about the suspicious circumstances surrounding Gabby and Victor and even Anne, and how they had withdrawn from the rest of the family, how they were absent from the searches, and how their behaviors raised plenty of concern to Lauren's dad and sisters. And while it is definitely concerning behavior, there were other factors at play that could have explained their disinterest. Now we want to move away from Gabby, Victor, and Anne and fill you in on what was going on with Lauren shortly before she went missing. In the last episode, we mentioned Lauren's decision to have an abortion, which happened on May 22nd. This is important to take into consideration because after this happened, Lauren started behaving in some very unusual ways. It all started with a phone call Cassie received. I had received a call from our other sister. She was like, hey, have you heard from Lauren today? And I was like, no, like, haven't heard from her. Didn't really think anything was out of like the ordinary there. And then she was like, well, she called me this morning and she was asking me to pick her up and saying like people were after her. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I was really confused. Lauren had been demonstrating erratic, paranoid behavior ever since May 22nd. But only those physically closest to her witnessed it. Those being her mother, Victor, Gabby, and her brother, Jeffrey. Cassie, Paul, and their other sister, they all lived hours away and didn't see Lauren on a daily basis. Lindsay, who would normally have been nearby, had moved in with Matt, who lived an hour away and was hunkered down due to the pandemic. While they all generally talked to Lauren on a regular basis, they couldn't have seen how strange Lauren's behavior had become. Jeffrey finally told Lindsay what was going on. Jeffrey was explaining everything she was doing. She was not herself. She was not right. He said he'd never been more scared in his life of her. Jeffrey said that one day he drove past her apartment 
and she was home and he was on his way to Dunkin Donuts or something. And she was sitting in the middle of her lawn with her legs crossed, like meditating. And maintenance was mowing the lawn and she wouldn't get up. Just weird stuff like that. And then even another time he was driving and she ran over to his car and was like banging like hard on her on his door and like let me in let me in and sweating like crazy Cassie who hadn't seen the erratic and paranoid version of Lauren became concerned upon learning of her recent behavior Lindsay, myself, our mother, we're like all on like a video call together. Like, well, what are we going to do? Like, has anybody heard from her? Can anybody file a police report? Like, I don't understand what's going on. I live two hours away. I mean, I hate to say this, but nobody that was in her surrounding area wanted to bring it to any kind of authority because they didn't want to deal with it. Like Gabriel refused and my mom was sick and she couldn't and Victor didn't want to be a part of it. The call to Cassie from her other sister wasn't the only strange thing that happened on June 1st. Earlier that day, Lauren had done something peculiar. She walked down the street to her mother and Victor's apartment with a letter and a picture in hand. She left both of them on the kitchen table and walked out. The picture was of Lauren and her daughter, Michaela. The note was not addressed to Anne or Victor, but to her daughter, Here's what Lauren wrote. Michaela, mommy loves you so much. I'm sorry I wasn't the mom you deserve, but you mean the world to me. You're my only reason for life, and without you, I have no life. You're my heart and soul, and I'll always be with you, even when I'm not. You're my angel baby, and now I'll be your angel, always watching over you and always in your heart. I love you, mom. The O in mom appears to be a namaste symbol and she drew a heart after her signature. The letter could have been interpreted in different ways, but it did not sit right with Cassie. I found that very concerning, and that was like one of the reasons I had reached out to the police. I don't know where she is. You know, she left this note, and they were like, well, the note doesn't really say she's going to, just like kind of implies, but it doesn't directly say that she's going to harm herself. But like, I mean, that note could be taken as she is going to harm herself or that, She thinks something bad is going to happen to her. Cassie was concerned either way. She called the Cape Coral Police Department back that same day to file a missing persons report because since that phone call to their other sister, no one had been able to get a hold of Lauren all day. She was told that Lauren had not been missing long enough to be considered a missing person. Still, they did take her seriously enough to follow up. And they did, like, have an officer follow up with me that evening. And they were like, yeah, like, Lauren's not missing. We actually got a call. And she had been at the Four Freedoms Park where she frequents. And I guess some, like, bystanders had called the police saying that a woman was acting erratic. And it was Lauren. And when they arrived, she was saying that people were after her. She had actually jumped in the water to, like, get away from the police. Paul explained further. She was actually on the other side of the park where there's like a little canal where you can park your boats and then there's the basin. She was on the other side where the hotel is and swam to the park like she was running away from somebody and trying to get away. And she was on the other side and swam to the park. And then people saw her 
Then somebody there at the park called the cops, supposedly. And then when she saw the cops, she jumped back into the water because she was afraid. When they finally got her out, she was saying things like about aliens and hearing voices. She swam back and then that's when they bicorrected her. A complete stranger had called the authorities when she witnessed Lauren jumping into the Bimini Boat Basin waters at Four Freedoms Park. Lauren was behaving in a paranoid way, enough so that someone found it best to call and report her unusual behavior. She resisted and evaded the EMT officers who showed up to collect her by jumping in the water and swam from one end of the park to another. To give you a little more perspective into Lauren's strange behavior that day, there's currently an outstanding warrant for her arrest. The charge is assault. Just as a side note, remember when we said Lauren's phone that Gabby had in his possession only had 10 days worth of usage information on it? That's because when Lauren jumped in the water on June 1st, she had her cell phone with her and it was never recovered from the water. So the phone that Gabby had was an old one she recycled after this situation occurred. So, let's talk about the Baker Act in a bit more detail for the moment. The term Baker Act is the name commonly used in Florida to refer to the Florida Mental Health Act of 1971. The Baker Act is a Florida law, and it allows for temporary institutionalization of individuals who are deemed a threat to themselves or others, or are incapable of caring for themselves in order to provide emergency mental health services. This is Dr. Joseph Bax, a board-certified interventional pain management physician for over 10 years. He's practiced in New York as well as Naples, Florida, which is very close to the Cape Coral and Fort Myers area. We'll hear more from Dr. Bax later as well, but he was able to provide a good explanation of what patients usually go through if this should occur. It's usually done against a patient's or a person's will because they don't think that they need treatment or they're resistant to treatment. So usually it's a loved one or a family member calling on their loved one or family member's behalf, and then they get the authorities involved or doctors or other law enforcement professionals to help provide some mental health evaluation and treatment for people who need it desperately. Other states call it a 5150 hold, so you might be familiar with that term if you're outside of Florida. It requires a police officer and EMT to escort the person to a psychiatric hospital and mandate them to a 72-hour observation. There, a person is tested for drugs, given a physical and mental examination, and then a determination of next steps is made. In Lauren's case, she actually stayed beyond that 72-hour hold. So they did Baker Actor from June 1st until June 8th, which is actually longer than like a normal 72-hour hold. But that's because Lauren was also harming herself while she was in there. She was not like cutting herself or anything, but she had hit her head off of the floor. So they actually had to take her to the hospital. And then when she was released from the hospital, they took her back to the mental facility. And then she had stood up on like a table or a chair and fell and hit her head again. So they had to take her to another hospital. And then she came back 
And then they gave her like anti-psychotic drugs. I'm not really sure what they're called. And at that point she had like started to get out of this psychosis. And at that point they said that she was diagnosed with brief psychotic disorder. When she was Baker acted, I was a proxy. And I spoke to the psychiatrists over at Park Royal. I spoke to them. And my first thought was like, you know, is she schizophrenic? No, they said she's too old for that. That would have showed up in her teens and early 20s. Too old, that's definitely not. Uh, drugs, no, we did a drug screen on her. You know, there was no really no drugs in her system, but that was three days later, so something could have been out of her system by then. What was it? Well, she had just had an abortion, so it could be like a postpartum type thing, you know, some type of a postpartum chemical imbalance. The medical staff at the Park Royal Hospital in nearby Fort Myers determined that the chemical imbalance that caused her temporary psychosis was as a result of the abortion procedure she had had on May 22nd. She came out of the psychosis. They weaned her off of like the antipsychotic medicine when she was in there. And then she was released on June 8th. Paul spoke to Lauren after she was released and she sounded completely normal to him. Aunt Sue also spoke with Lauren after she was released. You know, she just had told me that she felt good when she came out. She didn't want to take her own life. She was very positive during that phone call. Lauren did explain to Aunt Sue why she was behaving so strangely, why she jumped in the water on June 1st, and why she continued to harm herself while in the mental facility. She said that she was hearing voices. She said that the voices were telling her that the world was going to implode unless she did kill herself. But she said, I don't want to do that. But in order to save the world, that's what I had to do. And she said, I know it doesn't make sense. Clearly, it doesn't make sense. But at the time, it did. Jeffrey had been telling the family about Lauren's auditory hallucinations, about her paranoia, and it seemed like his assessment had been accurate. For the record, this was the first time Lauren had ever been Baker acted and the first time her erratic behavior of late had gone this far. The psychiatric facility had declared Lauren mentally stable enough to return home. And even though she had snapped out of it, Lauren was still released with a prescription in hand for an antipsychotic medication. I said to Lauren, please make sure that you drop off your medication to be filled because I knew what medication it was. I said, it works very well and it works quickly. I said, and they, people have very good results with it because I managed a pharmacy up in New York for the better part of 20 years of my life. She said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to because I don't, I don't wanna go through that again. Lauren had dropped off that prescription at the pharmacy. The issue was, well, still is, it was never picked up. According to Aunt Sue, Gabby was supposed to pick up Lauren's prescription for her. And it seems like he intended to. Gabby went to Victor and asked him for the money for Lauren's prescription. And Victor gave Gabby the money for the prescription. But Gabby never went and got her her medication. I believe there's an antipsychotic in a pharmacy waiting to be filled for Lauren. They have it on hold. So she dropped it off like I told her to. After Lauren was released from the hospital, 
Cassie thought it would be a good idea to check in with her sister in person. And I went and saw her on June 13th. So, you know, a few days later, I didn't really know what I was driving into. I didn't know if I was going to see erratic Lauren that I've never seen before or experienced before because this is not in her character to act this way. And then when I arrived that day, like, she was Lauren. She was just like, hey, how are you? Like, things were very normal. Cassie enjoyed the day with Lauren and Gabby, and things seemed especially happy between Lauren and Gabby, as Cassie described in the last episode. But the next day, June 14th, the strange behavior began again. Four days before she went missing. She called me at 6 a.m. in the morning, and she never calls me that early. And I answered it, and I was like, Lauren's calling me, this is odd. Turned over, answered it, and I said, Lauren, are you, are you doing okay? What, what's going on? What, what's up? It's earlier. Are you all right? And she's like, yeah, Lindsay, but like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. What's going on? Oh, nothing. I just wanted to see how you're doing. I said, I'm good. And then I threw it back and forth. It was a little bit of, are you good? Yeah, I'm good. I didn't, I never understood why she called me at six o'clock in the morning. And literally that was like the last time I talked to her. So I really wish I would have asked her better questions. That unusually early 6 a.m. phone call Lindsay received on June 14th seemed to indicate that Lauren was regressing. But what happened the next day would confirm it. On June 15th, which is a Monday, Gabby had called our father to say, like, he got home from work and Lauren was talking about aliens and the devil and people listening to her and people being after her. I get a call from Gabby at 10 o'clock in the morning and he says she's having another episode. And I talked with her. I was like, Lauren, what's going on? You okay? Yeah, dad, I'm fine. I said, what are you talking about? I don't know, dad. I don't know what the hell's going on, but there's something's wrong here. Me and him have been having problems. He leaves and he doesn't come home for two or three days and he comes home and works things out. He goes, I, don't, I really don't know what's going on, dad. I said, Lauren, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, dad. And she was crying. I don't know what's going on. Something's not right. I said, what are you talking about? What's going on? What do you think's going on? Dad, I don't know, but something's not right. It's like somebody gave me something. All of a sudden, boom, he grabbed the phone out. Right? Even though Lauren insisted she was okay, according to Gabby, she wasn't. And without her antipsychotic medication in hand, there was no snapping her out of it. Paul, still in California at the time, advised Gabby that if he thought she seemed to be having another psychotic episode, he should call the police and have her Baker acted again, which he did. An interesting thing to note, Gabby had never called Paul before, ever. And while Paul was grateful to be kept informed of his daughter's health, there were plenty of other people in the immediate area who could have helped. Gabby did not call Anne, nor Victor, who lived just down the road. I don't think they called them because it's my understanding that like, they were kind of fed up with having to deal with Lauren and like didn't really want to be involved in any more of like the drama. They would say like, oh, Lauren's on drugs or like this is just how she gets. But why would they have assumed drug use? Well, there is something we haven't told you yet. In addition to her recent paranoia and erratic behavior, Lauren did, in fact, have a history of drug abuse. And she had also lost a considerable amount of weight recently. Cassie had seen it for herself when she went to visit Lauren on June 13th. 
Hers was like a real addiction. She was a heroin addict. Hers was an everyday, multiple time a day addiction. And Lauren had been clean and sober for two years. According to Paul, her drug problem began as a textbook opioid crisis from when she was injured in a car accident as a teenager. The reason Lauren got involved with drugs to begin with was when she was a teenager, she got into a car accident and hurt her back a little bit. And they put her on pain management, which was Percocet, which and then it led all the way up to the heroin. Dr. Bax provides some professional insight into how this can all too easily occur for people in Lauren's situation. There's a lot of known risk factors for opioid misuse, abuse, addiction. You know, being introduced to it at a younger age, the longer you're on it, family history of substance abuse, personal history of substance abuse. Sometimes it happens more often in females, stressful situations. So if she was introduced to some of these medications at a younger age and for a longer period of time, that will give her a much higher propensity to addictive behaviors, psychotic behaviors, And it's not that difficult to get addicted to these medications or to heroin, for that matter. These are very high-risk medications and substances. You develop a physiological response to it, and you develop a tolerance to them extremely quickly. Unfortunately, you know, these are very strong, addictive medications and substances. So the cravings and the withdrawals are severe to the point where it becomes very difficult to stop them and very easy to relapse. Lauren seemed to check many of the boxes. She was introduced at a younger age and did have a family history of substance abuse. Remember, her mother had struggled with alcoholism. Lauren's road to recovery was not perfect, but she made some friends along the way. And as Cassie said, at the time of her disappearance, she had been sober for two years. Lauren's friend Christian is in recovery herself and has been by Lauren's side both battling addiction and recovering from it. When I met Lauren, we were both going into recovery. We met in a detox and neither one of us stayed clean at that time. We did use together for a period of time. She started seeing Michaela's father and got pregnant. Lauren has a daughter who is six years old, who she did lose custody of when she was first born. And then Lauren went into a rehab facility and had worked the program and then was actually able to get custody of her daughter while staying in like a family program that's for mothers and daughters. So she was working all of the steps and going to AA and meetings while able to raise her daughter. She had Michaela, she got clean. And during that time, I didn't see her as much because she was like in recovery and with other women in recovery who had small children. That rehab facility is where she met Erica, who you've also heard from in previous episodes. We were in this treatment center called Gratitude House together. So both Lauren and I had our little ones. At the time, they were babies. And we actually shared a room with two other girls that had babies. So we had four infants in one room together. It was just, it was madness and it was beautiful and, you know, We grew together and we overcame so much. 
Lauren had successfully gotten clean for her daughter, but it was a short-lived victory. Shortly after she finished that program, got custody of her daughter, she did move back to Cape Coral. That was from West Palm Beach to Cape Coral and started dating Gabby again. And she did lose custody of her daughter again because of drug use. Somebody had called like Child Protective Services because Michaela was kind of roaming around and Lauren was found in her apartment, passed out. Not from like an overdose or anything, but just like drug use. So she did lose custody of her to the paternal grandmother, so her ex-boyfriend's mother, who does still have custody of her. Unfortunately, Lauren had relapsed. As a result, she lost custody of her daughter again in 2018. But what a wake-up call that was. Lauren cleaned herself up again and was determined to remain drug-free, to be a mother who would, at some point, seemingly in the near future, get her child back for good. But for the last two years, Lauren has been working the program again through the state, doing all the random drug tests, doing all the weekly drug tests, working on fixing up her apartment so she could get custody of her daughter. Lindsay recalls Lauren's determination. Lauren's mission the whole time that she was with Gabby was to get Michaela back. She wanted her daughter more than anything. Gabby was very willing to bring her to the other coast, West Palm Beach area, to visit Michaela like every other weekend. But Michaela's grandmother had other ideas. Three months before she was supposed to get her daughter back and she was random piss test every week Part of film service would just show up whatever day, whatever, and, you know, give her a drug screen. Through all the hoops, did everything they asked, and she was going to get her daughter back from the grandmother. And three months prior to the trial, the grandmother called up and said, I don't care whether we go to trial or not, we go to court or not, I'm fighting you for custody, you're never going to get your daughter back. Lauren was just three months away from getting her daughter back, and on track to do so, despite the threat. But in this context, you can see how the note Lauren left on June 1st at her mother's house could have been interpreted not as a suicide note, but as a caring letter from a desperate mother to a loved daughter, one who she was told she would not regain custody of ever again. I read the note. I have the note. I have pictures of it. She didn't say that. It wasn't really a suicide note. She just said, you know, I'm your angel. You know, she missed her daughter, you know, really bad. She missed her daughter really bad, but she wouldn't have killed herself. Cassie and Paul had cleaned out Lauren's apartment, and in doing so, they got a peek into Lauren's sobriety efforts. Lauren was partially relying on Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous, though she didn't attend sobriety meetings regularly. But she was sobering up on her own. Lauren found that meditation gave her the clarity to keep her life on the right path. Cassie looked through her journals. Things that she would write that would, like, ground her, you know, like, keep her from wanting to, like, make mistakes. And, like, a lot about the universe and a lot about love and light and namaste and, like, working her steps and things like that. Like, she was very dedicated to her sobriety. I don't think she actually, like, attended meetings down here. I think she, like, found her own path of sobriety and, like, did it on her own with, like, her meditating. But it wasn't only meditation that was keeping Lauren sober. She had medication as well. 
specifically Suboxone, to keep her away from using illegal and illicit drugs. Lindsay, Matt, and Cassie found it in her apartment during their search. They also found a bottle of Narcan in her apartment, both of which are helpful for people trying to get off or stay off of drugs. Dr. Bax explains more about how these medications work. Suboxone is actually two different medications combined. It's a combination of a medication called buprenorphine and naloxone, or another name for naloxone is Narcan. So it's these two medications mixed together which make up the medication Suboxone. Buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist, which means it works like a morphine or a heroin or an oxycodone. It works like a pain medication, but it's only a partial agonist, so it doesn't work as strongly. The other component of Suboxone, or Narcan, is a pure opioid antagonist. So it works to combat the effects of the opiates, specifically respiratory depression. The issue when it comes to opiates and when they get into trouble using or abusing the opiates or heroin is that these medications can decrease your respiratory rate. And essentially you can stop breathing, vomit and choke on your own vomit and aspirate. And that's how you die typically. So people use Suboxone to usually come off of their pain medications or come off of heroin to prevent the cravings and the withdrawals that you're experiencing from the opiates or from heroin. So usually if somebody is high risk or on a high dose of opiates prescribed to them as a backup or a backstop or an antidote to overdose, they will also give you a prescription for Narcan. And that's typically given to use in case of emergency. And there was evidence that she was keeping up with the medication because when she was drug tested at the mental facility on June 1st, it showed Suboxone in her system, as well as marijuana. We were curious if there were any interactions between those two drugs. Actually, they're trying to use some medical marijuana in lieu of patients who are trying to get off of their opioids. So if anything, they're kind of trying to use that as an adjuvant treatment regimen. Taking Suboxone with marijuana, as far as I know, there is no major interaction. It seemed like Lauren hadn't relapsed, but it also seemed like she was still struggling with her addiction. As a fellow addict, Christian could relate. Suboxone is a safer alternative, but it's not a solution because at the end of the day, it doesn't get rid of all the fucked up shit that's in your head still. So that desire to use is still going to be there. She was on doctor prescribed medication. I think that Lauren was fighting like hell to live. She wanted to be a mother to her daughter. You know, she wanted to be happy. She wanted to change. And she's progressively gotten better since I've met her. She was just trying to figure it out and doing the best that she could with what she had. And for everyone that looks different, you know. Chapter 14, June 18th. We are now back to the beginning. Lauren was released from her second Baker Act hold on Thursday, June 18th the day before she was allegedly last seen. At this point, Lauren had been through a lot, and she still had a lot in front of her. She had now lost both jobs, one due to the pandemic and one due to having to take time away under psychiatric care. The COVID relief check would have benefited Lauren a lot at this time. 
But while it made it to her mailbox, it never made it to her bank account. Yeah, he stole her $1,200 stimulus check when he came in the mail. Despite this setback, Lauren wanted to get back to work, to get back to her normal life. So she did what she had done numerous times before. She turned right back around after returning home and took the bus around town to apply for jobs. Remember, she was spotted on bus cameras and at the restaurants where she had applied that day. The rest of her day has a few holes, but here's what else we know about what Lauren did on Thursday, June 18th. We know that, allegedly, at some point in the afternoon, she was at the Atlantic apartment complex pool, speaking to the maintenance man about available apartments to get out of a bad situation. We know she was home in her apartment at 6.26 p.m. because Cassie spoke to her for exactly 4 minutes and 22 seconds to calm her nerves about money once again. They planned to speak the next day, June 19th, and Cassie assured her she would help her get set up with unemployment. We know she was chatting with someone that evening through an app called Talk You. According to Cassie, Detective Jones told her the last message was sent the evening of Thursday, June 18th, and the message read, You guys coming? According to our sources, Detective Jones does know who the recipient of this message is, but is unable to share this information at this time. And no one has come forward publicly about being the recipient. And we allegedly know that Lauren made it home safely to her apartment that night, because she was in bed on the morning of Friday, June 19th, when Gabby left for work and said he kissed her goodbye. Given the circumstances leading up to June 19th, Lauren's family remains unsettled and finds it hard to believe that everything was just a coincidence. I don't believe in all these coincidences. I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe that these two times that she was Baker acted out of the clear blue and then you go missing two weeks later, it was a coincidence. That's just something that's never happened your entire life and then now all of a sudden that happens. That just doesn't make sense to me. And there's no evidence of why it even happened. Why wasn't he at work? I don't know. Why did he work that day? It was in the middle of the week. It was like a Tuesday or something like that. You know, and he called me. He should have been at work. She never had these episodes. She never had any Baker acts. She never had any mental health issues like that. Like, you know, nothing like that. Ever, 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 ever. Aunt Sue asked Victor if he could recall anything out of the ordinary that stood out to him on June 19th. And there was one thing. Gabby had said to Victor, driving home from work that night, that she went missing. I didn't hear from Lauren all day, just out of the clear blue sky, said that to Victor. And again, that's, that was not normal for Gabby to say something like that. But then again, not much had been normal in these days leading up to June 19th. On the next, Complicit. A community-wide event brings more attention to Lauren's case. The three of us were organizing the We Ride for Lauren event. There were probably a good couple hundred people. Another tragic situation. We kicked the door in and he called 911. The family's investigation goes deeper. He never was supposed to be there. 
I don't know, another coincidence? Is it another coincidence that same guy is the last one to see my daughter? A deceptive imposter brings more pain to the family. Somehow, some way, somebody got in. A female got in, posed as Lindsay. But where is Lauren DeMolo? Thanks for listening to Complicit, a true mystery podcast about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo. If you have any information about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo, please call 1-800-780-TIPS. That's 1-800-780-8477. Or go to www.capecops.com slash tips. Or you can text a tip to crimes. That's 274637. Tips can be left anonymously. And there is a reward currently being offered for information leading to an arrest. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and continued developments in Lauren's case. For additional information you won't hear and can't see on the podcast, visit our website at complicit-podcast.com. Also, be sure to follow us on social media, on Facebook at Complicit Podcast, on Twitter at Complicit underscore pod, and on Instagram at Complicit underscore podcast. Complicit is a production of 7th Guest Productions and produced by Resonate Recordings. 